Hello and welcome to another episode of Laying Down the Lore, a monthly podcast in which we aim to separate our ghouls from our goblins, our snotlings from our skaven storm fiends, and our bloodthirsters from our bloodletters, and generally ask, what's up with this Warhammer stuff? My name is Ben Crone Barber, and I know fuck all about Warhammer. With me is my co-host Christopher Crallen Allen, mm, yellow, who also knows fuck all about Warhammer. True, true. And my dear brother Darren. Hello. Who knows so much about Warhammer, it's a wonder he has time to do anything else. After gathering online to slay some vermin in the name of Sigmar, this dichotomy between our levels of understanding became clear, and this series is an attempt to address that ignorance. Dichotomy! <laughs> Word up. Yo, yo, yo. How are we, chaps? All good, mate. All good. Get your finger out your nose, you dirty beggar. Oh, sorry. So what mate. happens when you wear a tank top? Mining gold. <laughs> 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 Listen, all of this slander about tank tops, but I will have you know that we are one tank top sale away from tank tops being the most popular item on the Laying Down the Lore merch store. Well, that was always the plan, eh? That was that was always the the ulterior motive. <laughs> well, it just goes to show you there is such thing as ironic tank top buying. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Mate, our audience can keep buying tank tops from us ironically as long as much as they like i'm totally fine with that like they just buy them to make a point and put them in the bin that's that's cool um, ben all i can say i mean obviously i prefer they wore them is that your cleavage is looking mighty this morning <laughs> thanks bro i think this i might i might adapt this one because i don't feel like i'm showing enough cleavage yeah, yeah, I was going to say. If you end up with like a V neck, does that change it into a wank top? <laughs> a vank top. A, a vank top. <laughs> <laughs> only, only when said by a German person. Oh, there you go with your cultural insensitivity again. <laughs> Listen, I just I want love to say German people. Sometimes I dream of buying a farm and just letting them all run free. <laughs> or tank tops. Yes, tank tops. <laughs> Right, back on track, fellas. Let's have some grudges. Tell me, Chris, give me, oh, shit, give me, yeah. give me two oh, of yeah. your top yeah, grudges. Yeah. I'm going to go for one, Ben, making up grudges. Up grudges? <laughs> and <laughs> What's an up grudge? You were fabricating yeah, grudges. What's fabri- up grudge with you? Fabricating grudges, apparently. Oh, okay. And, oh, making um, up grudges, right, okay. I got a couple. I will go for Darren. Which one? I'll go for Darren. Not understanding joke timings. The timing is way <laughs> off. Apparently, I think that's a character <laughs> flaw, isn't it? <laughs> or maybe just not understanding jokes. Full stop. All right, Darren. Prepare to put me in the book. I don't know where my book is. <gasps> oh. Darren, fucking oh Barber, get off your God. arse and go and find it this moment. <laughs> I've looked for like two hours this morning. My God. I think Molly has it somewhere in her room. You don't know where your bonk of grudges is? <laughs> <laughs> I never leave home without it. Right. Okay. Episode. Right. Well, Darren, 19. you better be uh, taking a, a list of grudges to add to your book of grudges when you <laughs> find your book of grudges. I have like tome of grudges. That's a much bigger. Those are for huge yeah. grudges, man. <laughs> Right, well, I'm, I'm going to fill in for Darren's uh, two grudges. So what have I got here? Interestingly, another grudge that could be replicated this month as well. Both Kral and Dar for dissing tank tops. That's interesting. I oh. see a recurring theme here. Similarly, Ben wearing a tank top. Ben wearing a tank top. <laughs> How dare you? Right, you're going in the book for that. Um, Kral for all his damn questions. Yeah, okay, yeah, fine. <laughs> Ben questioning my damn questions. Uh, dwarfs for destroying a book of grudges. Well, there you oh, go. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an interesting one. But I think really the piece de resistance of my uh, book of grudges from last month was both for Blackfire Passgate. It was regarding the insults I received over the skyscraper incident. That's you just, said uh, gate there. Do you mean a ladder? Because depending on where <laughs> they're flipped, it's, it's like a ladder, but it's it's wider and split it's on in its half side. And yeah. it's on its side. Yeah, yeah. You don't know how gate works. I've just realised this. You don't know how gate works. <laughs> well, it's a, it's Jesus a Christ! It's a <laughs> <laughs> right, both for gate gate. <laughs> what you've just described is a fork on its side. 
<laughs> Cutting a ladder in half. <laughs> All right, it's two ladders <laughs> on a on a kind of hinge mechanism. When a mummy ladder and a daddy ladder love each other very much. Yeah. <laughs> they make a skyscraper. <laughs> no, that's just the daddy ladder. Right. Enough of all this gooey show of emotion. Kral, give us a uh, a WhatsApp recap. Oh, oh boy. Okay, here we go. Oh boy. <clears throat> Buckle up. Um last episode was the second show of Dwarves. 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 Thank you. Thank you. And we explored the prehistory of the dwarves, their creation in the jungle caves of the Southlands, their exploration northwards, and the establishment of fortresses and holds as they moved through the world's edge mountains. They were guided by the ancestor gods Grungni, Valia, Grimnir, and their incestuous offspring. The culture was formed, and then boom! The polar gates collapsed and the chaos washed over the land. Um, Grungni and Valia shore up to the holds with a newly invented rune magic, and Grimnir clears the lands around the mountains. Meeting elves for the first time, they discover the reality of the chaos, incursions, and the mysterious third chaos gate, which ultimately, and equally as mysteriously, Grimnir closes. Ooh. Ooh. Marks out of ten. Was that it? <laughs> Story of Amy's life. Is, you, is that it? <laughs> is it in there? Good night, baby. <laughs> I'm sleepy. <laughs> and I'm done. <laughs> Amy, is, is, what, is that a diary or a book of grudges? <laughs> you see, I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. Did you learn what the word summary means between now and the last episode. Uh, I, I kind of figured it out. It means just stick to the script as much as possible and uh, don't flash <laughs> it out. And uh, that's what you get. Rely on someone else's definition of summary. It's, it's a good... Exactly. That's, exactly. that's using the old noodle, yeah, yeah, mate. Yeah. As Darren would say, yeah. up there for thinking, down there for dancing. <laughs> I do, I that do say that. was phrase of I the weekend last week. He does do say that. that. Of course, yeah. That was, it was one of the names you used to dance under, right? <laughs> I tell you what, that looks really good in a poster. <laughs> yeah. And now on centre stage, up, up there for thinking, that's there for dancing. And everyone kind of looks confused. What? What? <laughs> and then I come out like, like Lord of the Dance, legs flailing unnaturally. <laughs> <laughs> Suspended slightly off the ground. Literally hovering through the power of my own legs. And like this. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, like the thinking man. Just the thinking man. <laughs> the thinking man from the waist up. <laughs> and then river dance from the waist down. <laughs> right, Dar, what are we doing this this month? Uh, we are going to crack on with the the after events of the Great Vortex from the dwarf perspective. Now, granted, it will seem a little bit higher, but it's still the same thing. That was a height joke. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. I did. I did actually get that, and I was thinking. I was. I think the problem is you have such a poker face when it comes to jokes, and I'm like looking at you, going like, "Did he mean that to be funny? Because that was pretty funny." And then there's a kind of pause, and then you're like, "That was a joke." And you're like, "Oh, okay, right." <laughs> So when we last visited the dwarves of the uh, Warhammer world, the Chaos Gates had just been closed successfully due to the Great Vortex put in place by Kalidor I. Um, at that time, their ancestor gods simply disappeared. The folklore within the dwarven race is that the gods just felt a kind of ennui and walked down into the deepest parts of the minds of the holds that they were in and simply reintegrated into the earth. Fell so, face flat into the mud. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Goodbye. There was no kind of angelic choir music, and they kind of yoded into non-existence. There was just a squelch. <laughs> <laughs> so with their gods gone, it fell to the, the children of the gods, the, the kind of first generation of dwarves, mortal dwarves, as we would understand it, uh, in terms of rulers. So it was Snorri, who was the Snorri Whitebeard, who's... <laughs> Snorri? Snorri Whitebeard, son of Grungni. Oh, Snorri Whitebeard, sorry. Yeah. Who became the High King. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not hearing the difference. I'm not hearing the difference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same picture. Yeah. <laughs> 
So after the success of the Great Vortex, the dwarves and elves became fast allies. And over the next 2,000 years, serious cases of peace and friendship broke out, which is kind of unheard of in modern fantasy. Um, Yeah, you make it sound like a a pandemic or something. Serious cases of positivity and good vibes (laughs) broke out all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) So with with the demonic nature of chaos drained from the world, they were left with the mortal aftermath of that. So... Armies of dwarves and elves started clearing out the old world of beastmen, of chaos spawn, of corrupted monsters, that kind of thing. And over several hundred years, the old world, that region, and in and around the World's Edge Mountains, became safer. There was not so many great monsters, certainly not so many corrupted monsters around. There's still the threats of greenskins and occasional primitive human incursions, but by and large, they created a safe country, a safe realm for both dwarves and elves. Sounds very self-righteous. I bet, you know, these beastmen and monsters and stuff, I'm sure they were just chilling, doing their own thing. And then these uppity dwarves and elves just came along and just fucked shit up for them. Just like, nope, <laughs> get out of here, shoo. They were probably very sad because they'd lost all the demonic friends, you know? So, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Invaders. When you said that the children of the what 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 are we referring to the guys that disappeared are they are they gods are they the ancestor dwarf? gods yeah they're very the much like a Sig- sigmar so they they did exist they were physically there but they have transubstantiated into dwarven heaven whatever that might look like and then you said like their their children are like the first mortal dwarfs were the ancestor gods born into the world in the kind of traditional, you know, man loves a woman sense? Uh, yes, I suspect they were, but I may also have misspoken. I meant like there was no inherited divinity uh, ah, from gotcha. right, the, right, the, right. the ancestor gods to their children. Uh, gotcha. They had extended life associated with perhaps the divine nature of the dwarves. So they had very, Mm. very, very long lives. If you recall in the first episode, we broke down, if a dwarf manages to live for 400 years, they become functionally immortal, but they still age. And so they still degrade, but at a much slower pace. So Mm. like a 1,600-year-old dwarf... um, Isn't in great shape. No, they're still a, a doughty dwarf, but they're like all their hair will be white. Um, mm. And they'll have like achy shoulders, but they'll still be absolutely ripped. And they're and they're judged by the length of their beards, aren't they? So yes, apart from Valia, I guess. Or do do female dwarves have beards? I'm guessing not. No, I, I mean I think it's they've got huge plaits. Uh, no, I'm going to make a pube joke. I'm just going to skirt past it. No, no, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No. Do it, do <laughs> it, no, no, do no, it, no. do it. No, 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 no. Have, I'm, look, I'm growing as a person. Um, Does that that means that Darren <laughs> is the wisest of us then, or the most respected of us? Because he has well, such only a, in these two kind of bits of white in my beard here, but they are quite quite. Yeah, deep. they are quite white, aren't they? Mm. They're like two fangs. Yeah, I'm 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 aiming for a beard. You're doing yeah. very well. Thanks, Pa. When puberty kicks in, that's going to really grow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an infant by dwarf standards. I'm an infant yeah. anyway. Who am I kidding? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So the elves populated the coasts all along Britonia, down into Estilia, around into Tilia, and one or two in what would eventually become the orc heartbeat of the Badlands. But they build these enormous watchtowers, which then grow into cities around them. So for thousands of years, the old world, as the, in that kind of central area, was split almost evenly between the dwarves and the elves. And there was a great trade between them. The elves had amazing food and wine and cloth and what have you. And the dwarves really surpassed the elves in terms of what they could build and make in terms of jewels, weapons. And because rune magic existed outside of the kind of winds of magic on a day-to-day basis, dwarven weapons were quite fashionable. A dwarven wrought pieces of armor or tankards, also steins, would be um, quite sought after amongst all the elven colonies. What's the difference between a tankard and a stein? I will say officially there is no difference between a tankard and a stein. (laughs) I did that purely to wind you up. 
<laughs> for our listeners, we had a debate the other day because Darren suggested that we release some laying down the lower steins, and I said, "Oh, and tankards as well." And the reason I said that is because I went online and looked at steins, and then there was a, a picture next to it of like you know, like the old tankards made from horns. And yeah. I thought, "That's yeah, we'll have those," but apparently they're the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming to that degree, then you can have a stein made from a horn as well, a horny stein. Yeah, you can even have, you can even have a stein made from a tankard. Oh, okay, wow, shit. <laughs> so the thing that kind of helped this peaceful trading relationship is the disinterested interest of elves and the honourable nature of dwarves. So there was no real emotion one way or another in the trade. It was seen as purely functional. But they did honour the allies that they were during the Great Chaos War that led to the creation of the Great Vortex. Sorry to take it down a crude direction momentarily, but have there ever been any interracial relations between, you know, in a romantic sense, between a dwarf and, and an elf? Jesus Christ, man, I've told you this before. It's <laughs> all right. Races can intermix. I don't know why you're so against it. Uh, I'm certainly not against it. <laughs> Are there such things as dwarven elves? There's been no mention of such in in the past or in the lore. I guess mechanically that would be quite difficult, wouldn't it? Well, you'd need some sort of harness or a swing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think they drew a line under it when the dwarves offered the elves their dwarven pump wagons and the elves just kind of looked at it and were like, "It's, it's a bit small. And just from then on, they were just like, yeah, this ain't, this ain't going to work. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So the continued good relations really revolved around Malekith because he was a great ally of the dwarves during the close of the construction of the Great Vortex. And for several hundred years after, almost 250 years, both Malekith and uh, Snorri Whitebeard fought side by side on many occasions as they cleared out the old world, as they made it safe for both their races. And this really ignited what the dwarves considered their golden age. So it's like for 2,000 years, all they really did was mine, construct vast numbers of fortresses, dwarf holes, and mining facilities all along the World's Edge Mountains, down through the Black Mountains, into the vaults and the Grey Mountains. So every mountain range in the Old World, and then down into the Badlands, and north up then into Kislev, you couldn't swing a dead elf for hitting a dwarven settlement. And the sheer volume of material they extracted from the earth really turned it into like a honeycomb. The entire length of the world's edge mountains is simply hollow you know on various levels which ultimately was to the dwarves detriment but that's a few thousand years ahead of where we are two big events happened here one was towards the beginning of the golden age so as the old world started getting cleared up the communication between the more widespread dwarven holds really was not great and ultimately the dwarves who lived in the, remember, the Zorn Uzkal, top of the Darklands, who would eventually become the, the kind of true Chaos Dwarf chaos. proper, yeah, felt yeah, that yeah. they had been abandoned both by their gods, because everyone felt their gods go, but also by their kin. There was no form of communication between the wider Dwarven Empire and the dwarves on the Plain of Skulls. Who was to blame there? Did they just lose contact or did they just get forgotten about? They just got estranged? Yeah, I think it's one of these things where both parties are to blame. I mean, the big event for the dwarves on Zorn Oskal is when they turned from traditional dwarven culture to the worship of the kind of god of darkness, the god of fire and evil metalworking. And that happened around about 300 years after the Great Vortex. So for 300 years... Neither side made any real effort to talk to each other. So Mm. the dwarves, for some reason, they didn't go up. They didn't go up and talk. It could be that there was, you know, a vast chaos army there that just, they couldn't shift. So, you know, you had loads of kind of little chaos empires dotted around the place. Maybe it was particularly Mm. strong, but also the dwarves of the Plain of Skulls, did they really make any effort to try and reconnect? Who knows? They could have WhatsApped any time. They could have reached yeah. out any time. But, you know, it happens when you grow up, isn't it? It's adulting. Just, you just drift apart. 
yeah. yeah. I find that as I get older, like if I if I speak with somebody I haven't spoke to in a while, like when I was younger, I used to be like, oh, sorry, I haven't called. Now I'm like, why the fuck didn't you call me? This is a two-way street, <laughs> motherfucker. Like, what the fuck's going on? It's not my fault. <laughs> Are you heading to the War of Vengeance? Is the honour of your hold resting comfortably on your shoulders? Aye, all may be as it is, but is your beard up to snuff? My name is Snide Glittercrotch. More than any time in our history, the beard represents the dwarf, and that's why my clan and I have invented the latest in beard grooming technology. The Hair Hewer 7.3 a behemoth engine of steel runes and blades designed to trim the toughest of facial hair. Its unique auto-bander technology seals your face tresses in the finest gold and silver details, thick enough to club a goblin to death. For those noble longbeards among us who rightly kill on sight anyone with beard shears, we have Goat Lube Beard Moisturiser. Tame your mane and your hair with one sloppy handful. Glitter crotch grooming. Aye, fuck the elves. So ultimately, about 1400 years after the creation of the Great Vortex, the elven high king himself leaves Ulthuin, comes to the old world, and travels to the dwarven capital of Karazakarak to meet the Dwarven King himself. Now, obviously, given the arrogance of elves and the idea that they're, you know, supreme, this is a, a unique event. They came to express friendship and kinship and to formalize, really, the good-natured relations they've had over the years so that they could have an embassy within the Dwarven capital and also the Dwarves could have an embassy in Lothern so that communication and trade and so forth could be taken to the next level. And of course, who did they pick for the ambassador to the Dwarves? But it was Malekith himself. Ooh. Um, ooh. And no one understood what was happening. The motherfucker. Yeah, the mother lover. The mother lover. No one understood at all why Malekith was pushing so hard to be an ally with the dwarves. He started out really thinking they were, you know, doughty fighters and really great steadfast allies, but he was told that because of the curse, he would never be the Phoenix King. And so it was uh, the princes, Belshanar, who was uh, elected as the Phoenix King, and Malekith stood aside gracefully, or was seen to be graceful. So so this powwow between the, or parley, I don't know what the correct term is, between the dwarves and Malekith, the Dark Elves hadn't been formed yet? No, not at all. Right. So he was still part of the High Elf. He was still part of the High Elves. I, I'm saying not at all. Like He spent centuries, and you know, best part of a millennia, traveling the entire world with a, a vast army of veterans who were his father's loyalist troops from in and around Nagrathi, one of the ten kingdoms of Ulthuin, Evil where Anarion came from. Evil Canada. No, this is Atlantis. Evil Canada is not, it doesn't exist as a country. Yet. Just testing you, Darren. Just <laughs> testing you, mate. Was Na- Nagrathi's the, the part of Ulthuin that he literally lifted up and moved to Evil Canada, is that right? Uh, yeah, that was broken into pieces, which turned into you know, floating castles and gotcha, evil ships yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. So he was building his power base amongst elven culture and exploring and gaining lots of magical items and power, learning spells, that kind of thing. He was preparing. So a mm. hundred years after he was introduced as the ambassador, he returned to Ulthuin. And that is when he accused his mother of being a Slaneshi worshipper. He then accused the High King, who the records say he took his own life, but was, you know, he could have been murdered. And when Malekith walked into the fire, walked into the, the eternal flame, was burned. And thus, Dark Elves proper as a race were created. Do you think there was a kind of, you know, when he was doing all the, the traveling and learning all of that stuff, do you think it would have been in a kind of montage style? <laughs> what kind of music would a they have? A thousand year montage. A thousand year montage. I think it would have been something very upbeat, like a sail mix away, between. Sail away, uh, sail away. <laughs> yeah, like a mix between Enya and uh, Rammstein. 
<laughs> with, a, with a little bit of eye of the tiger throwing in for good measure. <laughs> so for 700 years after Malekith's betrayal and the, the creation of the Dark Elves, elves really just kept to themselves and the dwarves didn't really have any great interaction with them other than the generalized trade that had gone on before because the elves were so proud they were desperate to keep this betrayal from the dwarves because shame absolutely because the dwarves would judge everyone because the dwarves judge everyone so after that after the kind of the treachery of malekith and the civil war and it all dies down to a, a skirmishing detente as it were elves begin to return once again to the old world and you see cities become reoccupied there's a minor expansion and what you've also got to understand is that the you know the whole of the planet is dotted with waystones as well. So there's the, the Waystone Maintenance Bureau, whose name I can't remember, that go around making sure all this stuff is still fit for purpose. So you have a bubbling of elven activity once again in the old. It's a very elf-heavy section, this, for the dwarves. It's really weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> but again, the dwarves begin to trade once more, and bargains are struck between individual princes in Ulthuan and the kings of various holds. And this is when some of the greatest works of art, the greatest feats of engineering are, are made by the dwarves. So we're still talking around about, what, 2,000 years before Sigmar. So we're still, we're still a good way away. Like the Skaven haven't arrived yet, but we're still really quite in a deep in antiquity. Is it like BS instead of BC? You know, like before Sigma. Clever, Ben. Are you? <laughs> but no, because they're the same thing. What? <laughs> At the Battle of the Skyscrapers is where the Empire was truly formed. And that was where Sigmar was. That that's where the calendars measured from. Uh, ah, that's cool. So, right. Okay. So the, the Sigmar himself had known the dwarves for about fifteen twenty years before that. Okay. It was then at two thousand five hundred years before uh, Sigmar. Yes, you've got me confused now. Before uh, the founding of the empire, Sigmar. That dwarven caravans hauling ores and precious metals and items and what have you started being attacked by elves. And only one survivor being left, everyone else being slaughtered in front of that survivor. And then that, that prisoner is released. All this stuff, some of it's taken, a lot of it is just left strewn on the ground. So the dwarves are outraged that this is happening and start lobbying through their embassy on Ultwin for explanation. And recompense. What the hell's going on? Um, at the same time, down in the Southlands, you start seeing lizard men attacking dwarven holds. And a, a big hold there, Carrick Zorn, which is the kind of big main hold in the Southland, was completely emptied by lizard men. And in fact, no one is certain how or what happened, but all contact with that hold just ceased. It, it's like it fell off the map. It's still not explained as to why that was done. There is a theory that uh, Dwarven, in their kind of adventurous nature, stole some golden plaques, the great plan of the old ones, uh, oh, yeah. from some of the Lizardmen cities down in the Southlands, and thus vengeance was enacted, but no one's entirely sure. These two events really mark the decline of the Golden Age, the end of it. These instances of dwarven caravans being raided and slaughtered and a single dwarf being left alive led to a lot of small battles, a lot of kind of, uh, how would you describe Thumb wars, arm wrestles. A lot of grudges were entered into books and due to small battles and skirmishes and what have you, these grudges were addressed or resolved. You have to kind of understand as well that the dwarves understand the difference between an individual's actions and a culture's actions. They weren't being attacked by high elves. They were being attacked by a specific prince or a specific settlement or or what have you. And so they would destroy high elf settlements that they felt they'd identified who had done this. Right. Hoping to avoid all-out war as this was escalating, we're around the 19... Yeah, nearly 2,000 years again before the foundation of the Empire. The Dwarf High King, Gotrick Starbreaker, 
possibly the best dwarf name ever, yeah. sends an ambassador to Ulthwin, who said like his his most one of his most trusted ambassadors, who in a very kind of brusque dwarf manner demands an explanation for these attacks, recompense for the lives lost, the goods stolen, and the affront to Dwarven honor and, and the Dwarven Empire. Belshanar, or, or who I think we referred to in episode three or four as Belshamalamadingdong. <laughs> <laughs> so the Phoenix King, Belshanar, the, the High King of the High Elves, or the Elves, in perhaps the most ill-conceived and arrogant way of dealing with someone, casts all kinds of aspersions, not only on the ambassador, but the high king and the dwarves, and formulates an insult so spectacular that it's like punching a dwarf in their soul. So what he does is he gets the dwarven ambassador held down and shaves his beard off. And not just his beard, but the beard of all the attending dwarves, all the kind of ones that are around him. Dark. And obviously, because the beard is kind of a, a vision of dwarves' gravitas and their age, it basically made an old dwarf a youngling in the eyes of dwarves, which is a horrific, horrific insult for, the, for that culture. It's like stealing time off of someone. What made Belshamar react like that? Pure elven arrogance. Pure elven arrogance. Son of a bitch. Wow. Yeah. Elven arrogance. I feel like you could bottle that. Thus began the War of the Beard. That is the name of the great cultural war between the dwarves and the elves. I, I might be getting confused by events here, but was there not... We, we spoke about beard scalping before. This obviously wasn't a scalping. This was just no. a... A shave. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Shave against his will. Uh, yes. But... What were we talking about with regards that to That was the greenskins. That was the greenskins uh, would uh, scalp the beards of dwarves. Wow. Right. Brutal. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty dark. I think it was Gorbad Ironclaw. Yeah. Okay. So yes, thus began the War of the Beard. Now, this was the name that the elves called it because it was a joke. The dwarves referred to it as the War of Vengeance because they take beards so seriously that they didn't want to be constantly reminded of a great dwarf leader who had been shaved. <laughs> when you say it like that, it seems like such a small thing, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> he, he was just shaved. He was, he was just shaved spoken shaved. like a true high elf then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I usually have to pay for that service and you know one for free. I mean what the fuck? Like, Chris, you could be like a young you could be a young dwarf with your I am a young dwarf, you dick. <laughs> uh, that actually wasn't a hide joke. I was referring to your your stubble, but, but I see now it well, works quite well. You, you killed two birds with one stone there, Ben. Thanks. Ouch. My pride. Oh, right. Book of grudges. Here we go. <laughs> We're going to take a grudge break. If you could just fill out your book of grudges now, that would be <laughs> Me for. Unintended height joke. Then for speaking truth. <laughs> ben for being honest. Ben. Just Ben. Just ben. <laughs> That's a great question. I was going to write Ben in capital letters. <laughs> ben! <laughs> well, you really sounded like the dwarf from uh, Lord of the Rings there. That was great. <laughs> Well, I have the beard and my attitude to hairy women. <laughs> so for the next 300 years, it was a state of all-out war. It happened primarily in the old world, but also in what would later become Tilia and Estilia. Just hordes of... You have to remember, at this stage, there were a factor of four to five more dwarves than exist in the current time in Warhammer, and probably the same for the elves. This 300-year cultural war, I think, wiped out somewhere between 35 to 50% of the population of both sides. Wow. It was a devastating combat where there was no quarter whatsoever. You know, if an elf saw a dwarf, he tried to kill it. If a dwarf saw an elf, tried to kill it. So there was constant warfare and combat. And it became such an, an apocalyptic cultural war that the leaders of both cultures 
took to the battlefield themselves. Wow. One of the kind of pivotal events during this vast world-spanning war was that the son of the High King of Dwarves himself, Snorri Halfhand, was killed, not just by any prince, but killed by Kalidor II, who was the Phoenix King of that time, who had taken over from Belshamalamadingdong. <laughs> and so this sent the kind of dwarven royalty absolutely apoplectic, and they hunted out elven princes whenever they could to kill the leadership to again enact some sort of justice on the situation. I'm just googling apoplectic. <laughs> I would I would say it means going crazy, going real yes. crazy to. Live and climb trees, I've got here. (laughs) (laughs) Darren, for teaching me new words. What what does it mean then, apoplectic crowl? Apoplectic crowl. It's a crowl which is... uh, (laughs) It's a condition. (laughs) Crowl poplectic? Crowl poplectic. It's a crowl-tastic word. Classic crowl. I've literally just read it. You've asked me what it means, and I've had to Google it again. <laughs> Overcome with anger or furious. <laughs> so about 100 years into the war, the elven city of Athol Maria was burned to the ground, led by a dwarf named Morgrim, who was a cousin of Snorri Halfhand. He was the, the son of the High King. So there was a kind of familial grudge was set up, and they were just trying to, as I say, kill as many princes as possible. While this is all happening, there is an event that happens around about 1700, 1800 years before the formation of the empire. Can we just call that 1800 BS? No, it's minus 1800 IC in the imperial calendar. What does IC mean? Imperial calendar. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Ben wants it to be BS. That's what he's saying. But BS. we're not allowing it. Okay. It. Fair enough. <laughs> Crowl for denying me BS. <laughs> that sounds really rough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not tonight, baby. I've got a headache. I'm gonna put one I'm gonna put one in for Ben. And it's just one word. Phrasing. <laughs> Phrasing. Is that how you want Skaven? Because that's how you get Skaven. Um, <laughs> and speaking of, that is the event. The fabled event of the Doom of Kavzar happens during the War of Vengeance. It happens in what would later be referred to as the, the Blighted Marshes or the Zombie Marshes. And Wow. While so the Doors were dealing with a shitload at that point in time. A vengeance war and... Yes. Wow. But the, this was the kind of creation of that myth of Kavzar in the kind of northern Tilia, true Skaven wouldn't exist for a, a century or so. So that they, it really, they hadn't experienced anything in terms of Skaven. We're just highlighting that that happened there as a kind of important world event. Um, right. Ultimately, the war ground on, and as I say, it really did decimate both cultures. It came to fruition at what's called the Battle of Three Towers at Tor Alessi, where the dwarves win an enormous victory. They wipe out a vast elven army and effectively break the back of elven power. So during this battle, Trick Starbreaker, the High King of the Dwarves, kills Kalidor II, the Phoenix King of the Elves, uh, and takes as a, a trophy the Phoenix Crown itself, which is the, the official crown of the Phoenix King of the High Elves. Now, this is no ordinary crown. It's meant to symbolize unity amongst elves. So it's made from precious golden ingots from each of the ten kingdoms in Ulthuin, together with various gemstones and magical enchantments. So this is the rarest of rare magical items. And and it took a century to make, as we would measure time. It's a real pengy hat. (laughs) Yeah. Bling. Mega bling. That still sits in the treasure house of the High King of the Dwarves, just thrown to one side in a corner as the uh, kind of ultimate <laughs> sign of disrespect to it. Amazing. Next to the uh, uh, the mop and bucket. The mop to, uh... <laughs> No, it is the bucket. It is the bucket. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's interesting that they wouldn't like <laughs> melt it down, you know, given the dwarves love of forging and whatnot they wouldn't kind of go the full what you have to remember is what would stick it to the elves more that it's been melted down or that it's still there it still ah, exists yeah. as the uh, you know as the symbol of high elf supremacy Oof, yeah that's a car so the elves march towards Karazakarak, the great high capital of the dwarves and they're about to make a suicidal assault against this mountain. When word reaches them that Malekith has once again returned, he has brought some of his black fortresses. These are the castle ships, and they've set up a new capital in Nagrathi, and all elves need to return to Ulthuin as quickly as possible. But not all elves do. So the army disperses, the vast majority of the elves head off, back to shore up the defences in mm. Ulthuin. But a significant portion of elves just refuse to go back. They're tired of the infantile politics amongst the elven princes and the constant civil war with the dark elves. So they migrate to Lauren Forest, and this is when the wood elves as a culture uh, wow. really come into their own. God, it's all kicking mm-hmm. off, isn't it? There's so it's many different events off. kind of happening at the same time. The Wood Elves intrigue me the most. I'm looking forward to learning about them. I think they're the oddest ones I've come across. There's some really weird druidic, ancient Celtic mythology mixed in with it. Quirky, yeah. That's not at all insulting. (laughs) Uh, Quirky. (laughs) They're a quirky bunch. So at the end of this, we're now 1600 BS. Shit. Yes! and, (laughs) And the dwarves have won the War of the Beard. They now are largely in control of the whole of the old world. Wow. At a huge cost. They've lost 40% of their race over four centuries of warfare. So Malekith attacks Ulthuin, and the yeah. elves just give up on the, the War of the Beard. They're like, okay, you can, you can keep the crown. Well, the capital's under attack. Yeah, I mean. their high king is dead. They're, they're led by local princes in terms of leadership <clears throat> from wow. Ulthuin, and now Ulthuin is under threat, so they've recalled the elves to combat the dark elves. And so it's just a kind of general acceptance that they've lost that, that yes. war. Yes, yeah, yeah. Right. They, right, they right, go right. with their little elven tails between their legs. Um, <laughs> the elves that attacked the dwarven caravans and really ignited the tinder for this warfare <gasps> were not in fact high elves they were dark <gasps> elves in disguise ah, oh amazing so this is malekith taking the long view of making two allies fight each other so his true enemy which are the high elves are divided and they're weakened uh, Genius. and so when he comes back for a more significant invasion and battle he stands a better chance it was a 400-year plan to stick it to the High Elves, and he used the dwarves to do it. Amazing. Cunning, cunning bastard. Up there for thinking. Down there for something, something. <laughs> <laughs> Hello again, and welcome to another special edition of How's It Made? I'm Hedron How's It Made Hammerhand, and with me, as always, is my assistant, Tim. A.K.A. Osik, apparently. Ugh, hello. <laughs> anyway, today folks we'll be looking at the Goblin here, also known as the Axomatic Pro or the Chobby Chobby Daddy Goblin, and asking the question that's on every self-respected dwarf's lips. How's it made? Tim? How's it made? Uh, I've not a clue. Tim, you're like a knitted condom. Fucking useless. Right, get over there and stand on that mark. Goblin Hewer specialist McKyson and Sons have just finished production on the latest lean, mean, green chopping machine, the Greenskin Buttfucker Mark III, and as you can see, we have one here in the studio. Its operation, as ever, is really quite simple. Here, let me show you. First, you take a wee handful of these razor-sharp axes, sharpen them even more, load them into the slots on the flank, aim the GBF Mark III at the target, and crank away. Brace yourself, Tim. <laughs> Sweet Sigmar's budgie, that is brutal. Right, 
While we are trying to sew Tim back together, let's head over to our equipment specialist, Mozak the Merry, who's at the Mackay Son and Son factory in Carrick Cadron as we speak to find out how's it made. Mozak? Thanks Tim, well it's offensively simple, they take a base made from pre-famulated amulite, insert two upright sheets of non-reversial leadium into it, install a series of large cogs made from panodermic semi-boloid absolutium, fix a cranky crankshaft to the outermost cog while connecting the upper cog to the lower cogs using modial interaction of magneto-reluctance. Then they construct a loading mechanism on each side using 17 old shoes, a length of turbo yarn and a couple of old jam jars. Connect them to the lower cogs using hydrocoptic marmalizers and tighten up the tension using a tension tightening tightener. Then finally they install a protruding shaft made from a reciprocating dingle arm to the front of the prefamulated amulite base. Suspend a huge cog from the supports at the top and attach sinusoidal steel plates on either side, each with four grabby arms made from ambifacient lunar wane shafts and dried porridge. Then whack a muckle great bronze dwarf heed on the front to scare the begrimnier out of anyone looking at it, including of course its own operators. And there you have it Tim, one goblin hewer ready to throw axes ineffectually at greenskin scum. Right. Pub time. Back to you, Tim. Excellent stuff. Thanks, my man. Well, there you go, ladies and gents. Another ball beater of a walkthrough there by the outstanding and ever-wobbly Mozak the Merry. I think we can all agree the goblin here is an utter gooch-spanker of a war machine. Isn't that right, Tim? <laughs> Tim, you're bleeding all over the bloody floor, pal. We have a word with yourself. Anyway, thanks for tuning in, folks. And now you'll never get caught off guard if anyone asks you, how's it made? Cheerio for now. The dwarves spend the next hundred years restructuring their culture as best they can. As I say, there's some dwarven holes that have been just effectively emptied. There's no one left alive in them. Above ground dwarven settlements have been largely wiped from the face of the old world by high elf armies. So the dwarves retreat into their holds and go subterranean, really start to repair a lot of the damage that's been done to the structures, but also their culture as well, and try and, you know, a hundred years of enforced baby making to try and get <laughs> the race back up again. Wow. Some of those hallways, I suspect, were very sweaty. Um, <laughs> and this kept going until about 1500 years before the foundation of the empire, hashtag BS. Yes. The whole range of the World's Edge Mountains and the Black Mountains and the vaults were just shaken to their roots by huge earthquakes, landslides. A lot of the lower sections of Dwarven Holds up and down the length of the whole Dwarven Empire collapsed. Wow. Oh, no. And a lot of holds were lost. I mean, you had entire dwarven fortresses just fall into chasms that opened up wow. underneath them. And is this in part because of the kind of honeycomb effect that they caused from... That, yeah, that honeycomb effect didn't help, but the whole event was triggered by the great machine under Skavenblight. Ah, uh, yes. If wow. you recall, uh, that was yeah. when the... Thankwall's happy accident. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. you had, given that their subterranean nature, the dwarven realm... You know, the arse fell out of it. Uh, wow. The great dwarven underway, the great, what do they call it? The Ungren Angkor, the great dwarven underway, the great road that runs the entire length of the World's Edge Mountains, in some spaces a couple of hundred feet wide, in other spaces almost a mile wide. Huge sections of that just disappeared, just fell into ground. So communication became all but impossible. At that time as well, because there were so many fissures opened up underneath dwarven holds, you then had Greenskins and Skaven rush in and overrun areas so the dwarves couldn't safely travel between each fortress or hold. God, it's all coming together. That's the true end of the Golden Age and the Great War of Vengeance resulted in a further loss of probably about another 20% of the dwarves. Literally fortresses, Ooh. whole fortresses with whole populations disappeared in the space of an afternoon. God, man, that is they crazy, had it. Man. They had it rough, didn't they? Didn't they? Yeah, they had it rough. I can't help but think that it could have been softened if the uh, Ponzi elves and the stubborn dwarves had just uh, got off their high horses. You know, I don't. I don't think dwarves have high horses. No, no, they probably wouldn't. <laughs> ponies, if they got off their moderately <laughs> <Yeah>. high ponies. <laughs> <laughs> In Warhammer, there used to be uh, dwarf cavalry, and they rode hairy boars. 
Amazing. Oh, like the orcs? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Love a hairy boar. There's a great image done by John Blanche, the fantastic artist. It's a load of dwarves lined up for battle, and they've got allied mercenary ogres are there together with a dwarf king on a boar. It looks awesome. That's, so That's cool. cool. We now have a situation where the Dwarven Empire is quite fragmented. Holds and fortresses are largely on their own. Some of the nearby ones have safe routes, either under or above ground. But for all intents and purposes, you're looking at fractured kingdoms rather than one contiguous empire. In the aftermath of the geological disasters that befalls the Dwarven race... The Goblin Wars start, and this is one of the first great wars between the dwarves and the greenskins. Um, with the honeycomb nature of the dwarven holds, the first hold to fall was Carrick Ungor. It was one of the richest in terms of mineral wealth, and the dwarves dug so far down and exhausted all of the kind of lower depths in terms of precious metals and ores and gems that they largely abandoned the tunnels because there was nothing there. There was nothing under there, except for an occasional troll that would wander through and then the dwarven tunnel patrols would take care of it. But this was an enormous coal mine to the nth degree, just left abandoned. You know, Tories in the 80s. No political <laughs> power? No? Go on. Shit. That was a good one. Uh, I'll talk about it. Yeah, th- thanks very much. With the um, with the destruction wrought by the the Skaven's great machine, there was suddenly a path in, and so in Karak Ungor, there was hordes of night goblins just occupied the lower depths and just worked their way up, killing everything they could find and taking everything that wasn't nailed down. And eventually, it became known as Red Eye Mountain. It was one of the richest dwarven holds, which is now firmly in the hands of night goblins. Several attempts have been made to retake it in the years since. One of the most famous ones was by the king of that hold at the time, Morik Stonehammer. But they were undermined by their own dwarven ingenuity because 50 times he tried to break down the gates at the front of the hold so that his forces could get in. But the dwarven rune magic was so strong, he couldn't. Um, and eventually <laughs> gave up and retired back to uh, Karazakarak. Didn't realise there was just a key under the rock to the right yeah. of the door. Just like, <laughs> That's right. Hey, just fucking, it's under the plant pot. You know it's always under the plant pot. Why Why did you send our whole army to try and break that? There's a key, pal. You idiot. I've just got a vision of him halfway back to Kara as a carrot going, oh, fucking hell, it's a pull. It's not a push. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so so these events were replicated all across the Dwarven Empire, the Everlasting Empire. Another good example would be the first real recorded assault by Skaven within the Dwarven culture it was roughly about 300-ish years after the kind of fable of the Doom of Kabzar, where a huge force of Skaven, what are those little ones called? Goblins, attacked uh, <laughs> attacked Carrick Varn. Now this was already significantly weakened because it's on the it's on the shores of the Great Black Lake, the Black Water, which is nestled in the World's Edge Mountains. And when their honeycombed nature was fractured, it opened up lots of the tunnels to the actual lake itself. So thousands of dwarves and their associated treasure were simply scoured from the tunnels by huge jets of water coming down, racing down these. Like wow. a death flume. Is that a thing? <laughs> it is now. Whee! It is now. <laughs> 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 so the great myth of the black water is that the bottom of it is just covered in dwarven treasure that got washed oh, out from all the different holes. We had mentioned previously, I think maybe in the second or third episode, of the great southern hold of Ekrand which is now referred to as Mount Bloodhorn. It's in the Badlands. And that was, again, taken over by night goblins and greenskins who poured in from the east. It was about this time that we saw the great migration of orcs and goblins really zhuzh up, as it were, from the Darklands into the Badlands and into the Old World proper. Uh, Mm -hmm. Again, more hold spell. We're looking at places like Gunbad, which is not at all a ripoff of Mount Gundabad from Lord of the Rings. I want to make that very clear. Even though it totally is, it isn't. Never heard of it. 
This was on the Darkland side of the World's Edge Mountains, where, again, one of the richest mines within the kind of Dwarven Empire, and it was the only source of a translucent blue crystal called Brightstone, which there isn't really much of a description other than it's translucently blue. Um, and again, it fell to night goblins, and it marked the decline of dwarven influence on the eastern side of the World's Edge Mountains. Was that bright stone magical or something? Did it have any properties that was it just a pretty gem? It was just pretty. I think it was just a rare and pretty gem, so a, right. a, a valuable item rather than a magical item. I'm sure it right. could be enchanted and have runes in it. The dwarves are very clever. I mean, not clever enough to keep their empire going, but they are clever. Um, <laughs> or, or know how to open the doors they put runes on. Yeah. Um, and really, the kind of death knell for the dwarven holds on the eastern side of the world's Edge Mountains was the fall of Mount Silverspear, which a huge orc war boss called Urk Grimfang took over and with all the greenskin originality named it Mount Grimfang. Uh, <laughs> nice. Mount me. <laughs> Mount me. No, that's something else. <laughs> Mount me. That's a tank top if I've ever heard one. <laughs> that's a tank top. <laughs> Mount comma me. <laughs> Mount comma me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so within 200 years of the catastrophic, the, the time of woes, it's called, the start of the time of woes when the, the World's Edge Mountains effectively collapsed, they lost something like 20 to 30% of all their holds. That's holds with a D. I'm not suggesting for a moment they got polyfilled. Um, <laughs> a shitload of polyfill. That was terrible even for me. So they effectively abandoned everything on the eastern side of the World's Edge Mountains. So you see vast migrations of dwarven populations going from hold to hold. This is where we start seeing dwarves perhaps move into the Grey Mountains, the start of that kind of cultural shift to the Grey Dwarves, and we start seeing the fracture overall of the dwarven race. Whereas before it was one empire, it's now multiple kingdoms at this time. Then about another hundred years after that, so we're we're talking about twelve hundred years BS to keep it in there, uh, Ben. That's infected my head now, Ben. Thanks so much. Yes. Um, yes. Can we can we come up with another one for kind of after that point as well? Because eight well, eight is what does Anno Domini mean? After Dominoes? It's pizza <laughs> was invented about the same time as JC. <laughs> <laughs> nothing good ever happens ad in that case yeah. like after domino is a terrible after terrible <laughs> state to be like it's not really food most of it comes from an aerosol can i was reminded recently of the best name for a fast food place it's a, a chain in ireland and i used to frequent them all the time abracababra <laughs> <laughs> god almighty um, the amount of food from there i've thrown up is unbelievable <laughs> just because of the name just because of the name amazing <laughs> maybe we could approach them for sponsorship <laughs> sponsored by abracadabra <laughs> <laughs> we then enter into effectively a thousand years of just dismay and war and tragedy and loss for the dwarven empire it's a real decline Already significantly reduced dwarf numbers from the War of Vengeance, then losing another huge portion of their population in one day because of the earthquakes and volcanic eruptions and the destruction in the immediate aftermath of that, followed by then all of these routes into dwarven holes that never existed before for the newly evolved Skaven and the greenskin hordes from both above and below. Christ. The dwarves at this stage, this is when they become a dying race, a faded race, as they are in almost all fiction, mm. together with the elves. A case in point would be the tale of Carrick Varn, which is a great seat of rune smithery. That's a word. Go fuck yourselves. That is a word. <laughs> um, if BS so, is a thing, rune smithery is a thing. Rune smithery. <laughs> <laughs> so... In search of vengeance in the kind of invasion of Karak Varn from the Skaven, who have swarmed up again, the story repeats itself all over the, the Dwarven Empire. Uh, Skaven and Night Goblins attack from below. The defense of Karak Varn falls to a runesmith called Cadron Redmain, who leaves the actual hold itself and tries to clear out as many Skaven as possible 
in and around the surface so that he can construct outposts and camps for the dwarven populace because the Skaven are just coming in, washing the place with warp fire or poison gas. So the population leaves the hold and then re-enters and works its way down, trying to clean as much as possible. Um, Mm. As he's doing this, he discovers a huge vein of Gromil, which is the Warhammer equivalent of Mithril, uh, yeah. And news of this discovery attracts more and more dwarves. Again, remember, there's lots of dispossessed dwarves roaming the world. So news of this brings huge contingents of dwarves to the hold with miners, which bolsters their numbers, increases their capacity to retake more and more and more. Unfortunately, again, on the shores of the Blackwater, within the midst of the World's Edge Mountains, Cadron Redmain is ambushed by orcs. And in a last stand he throws his great rune hammer into the Blackwater. Again, there's a theme running through a lot of the kind of time of woes where dwarven treasure is either washed away or thrown into lakes. And that causes some events later on, which we'll cover. Uh, We then come into the kind of the halfway point of the great time of woes, the, the collapse of the dwarves, as it were, with the Battle of a Thousand Woes, where the High King Snorri Morgrimson, uh, Snorri McTired face, <laughs> Yoni Muk. So <laughs> 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 <Shall> we, uh, <laughs> nah. Uh, nah, nah, let's, let's have a nah, nah. let's not bother. <laughs> let's call our I mean, main down at Red Eye Mountain and get some more of that week. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's all funny, but his name is Scory, not Snorri. Scory. No, it's not. I thought you were saying Snorri <laughs> up until that moment. I thought it was Snorri. I, absolute, I absolutely did, but his name is Scory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the joke's on us. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you look like idiots? What? No. <laughs> what? I've been calling him Snorri all this time. What an ass. <laughs> so Scorry Magnuson then clears the valley and the gatehouses of Karak Ungor, but ultimately is driven back. And he, he is so distraught about this that on the way back to Karazakarak, he takes the Slayer's Oath. So oh. it, it's one of the first recorded instances of a king taking the Slayer's Oath. He doesn't remain a king, he abdicates and takes the Slayer's Oath and dies not too long after this event. What's interesting is that every kind of prince afterwards takes an oath to retake Karak Ungor. And when I got into Warhammer, so what, 87, 88, there was actually a regiment called Prince Ulther's Dragon Company. And these were kind of resplendent chain mail and plate mail armored dwarves with axes and hammers with kind of purple tabards on with a a kind of stenciled dragon on it. And that is the current would-be king of Karak Ungor. And he goes around trying to build uh, momentum to try and take an army down and retake Karak Ungor. Nice. And I think, given the sheer volume of information that we've got to get through to get to the BS slash AS moment, this is where we should draw a veil for this episode. Nice. God, it's all... Do you know what? That episode was amazing because it felt like you brought a lot of the... Not loose ends, but a lot of the events woven into each other. I've got a much greater understanding of where everything sits in the timeline now. I think it's one of the things that Warhammer does well is that none of the cultures exist in isolation. And because they've spent Mm. so long constructing the lore and constructing the history of each race, the overlaps make sense, if you know what I mean. They don't. Yeah, yeah. 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 There's no hang on. There's no issues really with continuity, even though there there probably are one or two, but none so major that it would distract you from the historical aspect of the lore. Yeah, it's really good. It's all kind of like interrelated in a way like the, a rich the, tapestry the, of law that's the, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> uh, what, what do you think of the uh dwarves so far crowley yeah you know dwarves they're great <laughs> they're just good one nice nice magical nice. little dudes you've been and, uh, you've been planning yeah. that all keep on trucking dwarves keep on trucking <laughs> <laughs> Uh, right shall i wrap up 
please do. <laughs> <laughs> do we have another life changing summary from you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. All right, that's all from us. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about the topics we've discussed in this podcast, you can find all the reference articles in the show notes or on our website at layingdownthelore.com. We also have all our previous episodes on there, release schedules, merchandise, and you can sign up for the Laying Down the Lore newsletter, which includes exclusive info about upcoming releases, behind-the-scenes chat, and some extra lore not covered in the podcast. Big thank you to all our Patreon supporters. We couldn't do this without you guys. You cover our costs and allow us to spend more time planning content and scripting those ridiculous adverts, not to mention the moral support that we so desperately need. If you're not part of this merry band, you've enjoyed what you've heard in this episode and you want to support the podcast, head over to patreon.com forward slash laying down the lore and sign up today. This will give you access to our Patreon-exclusive bonus series, Chunks of Dar, a bi-monthly informal deep dive into the topics discussed in the main podcast, in which Kral and I essentially interrogate Dar. You'll also gain access to our Discord server, which is pretty much Warhammer Banner 24-7 with the three of us and our growing posse of lovely time wasters. We'll be back again next month displaying just how little Chris and I know. Until then, ta-ta! Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba! If you buy a tank top, you should take your own life. Bye.